Well, good morning. So thankful for um, the Cranages' faithfulness, and I know many of you have prayed for them over the years, and if you can sense God tugging you to be a part of a ministry like that, even in, uh, by praying, I hope you'll contact them in the next few weeks. Also, this morning in the first service, Lisa Farrell is back. Lisa has been serving in um, Central Asia. She is back uh, for the day. Um, she's back in the States for reassignment, but if you have been involved in her ministry, she is around, and uh, hope you'll get up with her, as well as Chris Howington, who is now serving kind of behind the scenes in Richmond and has been in uh, Asia as well. She's back today, too, so I hope you'll catch those ladies and encourage them. Also, Mr. and Mrs. Jackson are back from their honeymoon, um, Stephanie and Russ, so I hope that you'll say hello to them and encourage them as well. But today I want to talk with you about um, a series or a set of vices that are crippling to us and uh, some virtues that I think are enabling and freeing to us. And by way of getting you to think about that, I'll tell you what I hope is an urban legend. I just hope this is an urban legend, so we'll see. It's allegedly based on an actual radio conversation between the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 95. The radio conversation was released allegedly by the chief of naval operations in 95 and authorized by the Freedom of Information Act. The Canadians direct the USS Abraham Lincoln to divert their course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The Americans respond... We recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians say negative. You, have, you will have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans say this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians say no. I say again, you divert your course. The Americans say this is the largest air, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. I say again, that's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of the ship. To which the Canadians responded, This is a lighthouse. Your call. Except there has been an, ex- an explicit denial of that by the USS Navy, so I hope it's an urban legend. But it demonstrates to us the folly of these twin sins called pride and anger. And they show up in our conversation today that we're listening in on in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles there as we begin our time in prayer. God, these are virtues um, that we so need, virtues of humility and teachability and vices that we cannot see in ourselves unless you show them to us. We see others' pride. We see others' anger. But ours is always excusable or justifiable or even invisible to us. So God, help us see today our sin so that we can be free of it. Um, The fruit of it is devastating to us and to your name. So... God, have your way with us through your word and by your spirit now as the words proclaimed. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, by way of review, you remember that King Saul, the first king of God's people, has gone over to the dark side and is pursuing his heir, the anointed king David, who is not yet reigning. He's pursuing him in order to kill him and to take his life. And through... A sovereign turning of events in chapter 24 and 26, 
we saw last week that in each of those chapters, God has sovereignly given Saul over to David so that David might eliminate this man, might take his life so that this man, from this man who is seeking his own life. But in each of those cases, chapter 24 and 26, David refuses to take Saul's life. In chapter 24, when Saul comes into the cave, as the King James puts it, to cover his feet, which is a euphemism for our euphemism, use the facilities. Um, David is waiting in the cave and yet doesn't take his life. In chapter 26, we saw that David actually walks at night into Saul's camp where Saul has been sovereignly put into a deep sleep along with all of his army. And David stands there with Abishai, his friend, with spear ready to kill Saul. And David refuses to take advantage of that situation as well. Both evidence of his trust and faith in God. But in the second case, in chapter 26 in the camp, David seems more sure of his decision. Remember in chapter 24 when they're in the cave and he cuts off the hem of Saul's garment? It says afterward David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. There's no incident like that in chapter 26 in the camp. David's clear and sure about it. In chapter 26 in that camp, he even calls back to Abner, Saul's military commander, and to the army, and he chews him out publicly. He says, why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master. The Lord's anointed. And then he makes, in chapter 26, this amazing statement about trusting God with timing. He says in verse 10, As surely as the Lord lives, David said, the Lord himself will strike Saul. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And David expresses this remarkable ability to wait on God's timing, on his provision, and not to take matters into his own hands. This is downright um, un-American. Um, that we should have to wait for God in this way. There was a survey that was done by the Associated Press that indicated um, that most of us cannot be put on hold on the phone more than five minutes without losing our cool. Five minutes is the breaking point for a large majority of us. Only 7% can remain calm after being put on hold for 20 minutes. You know what's really sad? That sounds very reasonable to me. That after being on hold for 20 minutes, of course you'd lose your cool. And so the question for us is how do we as Americans who don't like to wait get to the point where like David, we are willing to wait on God for the things that matter most to us? Chapter 25, I think, explains a part of the process that God is using to prepare David to be the anointed king of Israel, to be most useful in God's hands. And that is the whole idea of he's learning to trust God and his timing rather than taking matters into his own hands. And our chapter starts in verse 1 with the death of Samuel, whom the book is named for. And all Israel assembled and mourned for this prophet, but it is a brief mention of it 
It says they buried him at his home in Ramah, and then David moved down into the desert of Maon because the focus of the book is no longer on what God is doing in and through Samuel. Now the focus is what God is doing in and through David. And so now I want to introduce to you in chapter 20 to the first of two people that God uses to impact David in a significant way. The first of those is a man named Nabal. He is a very wealthy, successful businessman. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. So now it's time for Nabal to reap the fruits of all his labors and shear his sheep and then trade and sell the garments or their, their uh, wool for uh, profit. He, uh, his name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. We have here the odd couple. Beautiful, intelligent, surly, and mean. Um, While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so he sent ten young men and said to him, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. And when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you, David says. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men since we come in a festive time. Please give your servants and your son, David, whatever you can find for them. So this is a humble request by David to Nabal to share in his good fortune uh, with the one who has provided a kindness to his shepherds and protected them in the desert. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants this way, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his. And about 400 men went up with David while 200 stays with the supplies. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings. But he hurled insults at them. Nabal, in this story is a fool. He has no idea who he has just dealt with or what he has just done. Matter of fact, even his wife, if you'll flip down to verse, um, let me see, verse 25, she calls him a fool as well. She says, um, my Lord, pay attention, no attention to the wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool and folly goes with him. Even his wife recognizes this. His very name, Nabal, means fool. Now, we hope that's a nickname and that his parents didn't actually name him that. Um, But it's kind of a paradox, isn't it? A wealthy, successful businessman renowned for being a fool. It, It doesn't seem like those things would go together. But they do, in Nabal's case, because of two things. One, his pride. There's a verse in verse 36. It says, he is in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. Um, He is a proud man. 
And that is one of the things that contributes to his foolishness. And the other um, is the way that he treats people. But first, just in helping you think about pride, pride will make you a fool. It will make you do and say foolish things. There was a, a young construction worker new on the job, and he was a buff, strong, strapping young guy. And he was, he was bragging everybody how strong he was, you know, picking things up, moving things around, impressing everybody. And there was one older construction worker that he was particularly hard on because obviously he was nowhere near his prime and nowhere near his fit anymore. And so he's ragging on him and bragging and boasting in front of him. And finally, the old guy had enough, and he said, look, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? And let's make a wager. He says, I'll bet a week's wages that I can put something in this wheelbarrow, carry it over to that building that you cannot carry back. And the young guy, you know, says, you're on. Let's do it. And the guy said, okay, get in. <laughs> Pride will make... You, the rest of you can think about that. You'll figure it out on the way home <laughs> that there's a reason that half the congregation is laughing. So you just work that out. Um, Pride will make you a fool, especially in the ways that you deal with, with people. And in this way, Nabal is the poster boy of fools. He matches the description in Proverbs and other wisdom literature in the Old Testament of a fool almost word for word. Um, in verse 3... It says that he is surly and mean in his dealings with people. He treats people badly, and that is one of the hallmarks of a fool. Proverbs says, it's to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel and fight with people. In verse 11 of our chapter, we find him to be extraordinarily selfish. He will not even give bread and water to the men who have safeguarded his shepherds as an act of kindness. Bread and water. He withholds from that. Um, and this is a hallmark of a fool. Isaiah says the fool speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness, spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty. And from the thirsty he withholds water. Um, he's a selfish, not a generous man. And he's described in verse 17 as being such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Again, Proverbs chapter 23 says, Don't even bother to speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Nabal is a proud fool because his pride dictates the way he treats with people. But he's especially foolish because of the way he deals with the Lord's anointed. As we'll see, the second character I want to introduce to you is his wife, Abigail. And she knows who David is. She knows details about his life. So the knowledge of David as God's anointed ruler is in his household. But Nabal is a fool. And he doesn't recognize it and he opposes. Psalm 74 says, Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long, just as Nabal did with God's anointed king, David. And this morning, I just want to underscore for you that the most spectacularly foolish thing you could do today would be to persist in resisting the anointed king of God, Jesus. If you 
are resisting him in an area of obedience or even in unbelief this morning. There is no more foolish act that you can be involved in. Why would you oppose or resist someone who came according to Jesus, uh, the annunciation of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, who came for your good to free you from your darkest enemies, your own sin? Why would you resist and oppose one? On the other hand, the wisest thing you could do today would be to turn from your folly and trust the one who died to free you from your sins. Jesus, the anointed king that David anticipates. But back in our story in chapter 25, sadly, fools seem to bring out nothing but folly in those around them. And that's why David acts so rashly here. He feels he's justified. Nabal has done him wrong. He's responded with his, to his kindness with evil. So he acts what he thinks is justified, but it is a rash act and a foolish act done in anger. And he's spared joining Nabal as one of the great fools of the Old Testament only by the quick thinking of Nabal's good and beautiful wife, Abigail. Abigail... In, there we go, we're getting there. It says, um, Abigail lost no time. Let me read this first. Oh, that's good. Abigail lost no time. Once she found out, the servant came to her and told her what had happened between Nabal and David. She lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Again, you have this contrast between the stingy Nabal who won't give bread and, and water and his wife, his wise wife, who just loads up donkeys of stuff. She told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. And David had just said, It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to, this, to the ground. So this wealthy businessman's wife is now sending out gifts and she's bowing in the desert sand on the ground before David. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense. She's talking about herself here, not Nabal. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, that's a reference to Saul. She's aware of what's going on with David and Saul. The life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Echoes of Goliath. 
When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember, remember your servant. Abigail here is a study in contrast with her foolish, wicked husband. She is discerning. You watch the way she wisely deals with her husband and with David. Whereas he is a fool. She is good. Literally the word that's rendered intelligent there is the word good. He is wicked. She is generous. He is stingy. He won't even give David bread and water. She loads up donkeys full of cakes. She is humble. You see it in her posture, this wealthy woman bowing down in the sand. And 14 times she addresses David as my master or my Lord. Calls herself your servant. She is sacrificial. Nabal, of course, is proud. He's the one having a banquet like a king. She is sacrificial. She's willing to take the blame. He is selfish. She's a peacemaker. He's antagonistic. She is godly. In her speech, she acknowledges God as sovereign, living, the one who establishes kings, the protector, the judge, the promise keeper, the one who does good, and the one who grants success. But Nabal makes no mention of God, has no apparent knowledge of him or fear him. He seems totally unaware of whom he has just turned away. Whereas Abigail knows all too well who David is. And as a result of her humble, faithful speech and her generous gifts, David listens to her. In verse 32, it says, David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day. And for avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Abigail embodies the truth that those who are most useful in God's hands are found in a position of humble submission to God and those he has placed over them. Through Abigail's humble, faithful, unselfish acts and speech, David is spared a grievous sin. The life of her husband is spared, at least initially, and her sons are all spared because of her actions. And ladies, though it's, her example is true for all of us, she is especially a delightful and beautiful mentor for you Um, about the beauty and the faith that's required and the influence that a woman of humility yields. She is extraordinarily influential because of her humility and faith. Her example echoes in the example that all wives are called to in 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
This morning, ladies, if you wrestle with the concept of biblical submission to your husband, you need to understand that it flows out of two prior virtues, a willingness to trust God and believe that his ways are best, and a humble heart. If you are wrestling with submission to your husband, how's your humility? How do you feel about a verse like this? It says, when you have done everything you're told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Obviously, that has application to all genders here. But ladies, as you wrestle with honoring God from a position of submission, this morning, Abigail beautifully presents that that is a position that's fueled by faith and humility, and it's a position of great influence and great redemption in the hands of a living and loving God. She saves her family by her humility and her submission. She influences the king, David, by her faithful, humble heart. Now, gentlemen, lest you should feel left out, I've saved a virtue for you this morning. It's the virtue that David models here. It's called teachability. You get the picture here. David's a young man. He's probably in his 20s. He's got 600 guys armed, ready to do whatever he asks them at a moment's notice. He's just given orders for 400 to ride with him to Nabal's house and slay all the guys. When they meet this woman groveling before him and she pleads with him and David takes it back and sends the boys back to camp without having engaged in battle. Essentially, David eats crow here because he has just made a very rash, stupid, macho pronouncement about riding into town and taking care of Nabal and his kids, his family. And now he recants in front of 400 fighting men. David is teachable. Even in the midst of his anger, he's a teachable man. And uh, just to help you uh, remember teachability, um, I'll tell you a brief story about a police car, a cruiser parked on the side of the road, part of a speed trap. State trooper sees a car. Instead of speeding on the interstate, it's puttering along at 22 miles an hour. And realizing that this is as dangerous as a speeder, the state trooper turns on his lights, pulls the car over, and as he approaches the vehicles, he notices there are five elderly ladies inside, two in the front seat, three in the back, wide-eyed and white as ghosts. The driver, obviously confused, says, Officer, I don't understand. I was going the exact speed limit. What seems to be the problem? The trooper, trying not to to chuckle, explained to her that 22 was the route number, not the speed limit. But a bit embarrassed, the woman grins and thanks the officer for pointing out her error. That's teachability. Before you go, the officer says, I have to ask, is everyone in this car okay? These women seem awfully shaken. Oh, she answered, they'll be all right, sir. We just got off Route 127. (laughs) Now... You're going to go home. You're going to remember that story. You have no idea what I was about. Teachability. The five ladies in the car. Teachability. Okay. Um, man, as long as I am pressing on you, um, are you stubborn at home? 
when you're wrong? Or are you teachable? Are you teachable even in your anger? Are you teachable even by your wife? How about your children? My children, <laughs> um, especially the females, female children in my home have a remarkable capacity to pick up on foolishness in me and kind of gleefully point it out. <laughs> it's not always received by me with the same kind of gleeful response. But humility requires that we are teachable, that we recognize that God speaks through all kinds of voices. Are you willing to hear them? So at this humble woman's urging, David refrains from vengeful sin. And he, by his actions, entrusts the fate of Nabal the fool, who has just treated him badly in return for kindness. He now will entrust the fate of the fool to God. He will not take matters into his own hands. And this is an imperative part of the training of David as the anointed king of God. To be most useful in God's hands, he must learn to trust God and not take matters into his own hands, especially matters of vengeance. Now, I want to show you what happens next in this story. It's absolutely amazing. Verse 20, or 36, when Abigail went to Nabal after she'd worked the deal with David, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. So he's a, 400 guys are riding in to wipe him out. This guy's partying like he's some king. He's in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. See, this is the fate of fools who don't repent of their folly. And Nabal's arrogant foolishness persists until the end where he is judged by God. Now, there's a temptation in reading a story like this to say, well, that's fine, but it never happens that way, really. I mean, fools go on to own businesses and run companies and be my boss and have everything they ever wanted and have a happy life. <laughs> and I, I want to say this morning... Um, oh, yes, it does happen this way. It happens this way every single time. Because in the book of Revelation, we find John sees a vision. He sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. There is coming a day when it will surely be like this. Jesus taught it. He said, don't be amazed, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There is coming a day when most assuredly it will be like this in every single case. This is the teaching of the Old Testament as well. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. There is coming a day when God will write all wrongs and judge all deeds. It happens this way. It will happen this way in every single case. Nabal and all unrepentant fools who mock and oppose the ways of God will be judged. Our story continues. 
When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong. Again, this strong emphasis on God sovereignly working in David's life. And has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. And his servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to take you to become his wife. And she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Here is your maidservant, ready to serve you, and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. See, just as Nabal's foolishness persists until his death, Abigail's humility persists. And she now, rather than being married to this mean, surly fool, now she is married to the anointed king. It's, it's almost a fairy tale ending. It's almost because of this little polygamy thing that David's involved in. And uh, we're, we're not about that, okay? We're a one-woman, one-man kind of people, so that, that was a little problem. But um, other than that, you know, this is the, this is the fairy tale ending, right? And again, there's a tendency to think, yeah, it never happens that way, though. I mean, you, know, the, you do the good thing, and then you get tromped on. And, uh, I want to say, oh, but it does happen that way. It happens that way every single time. The book of Ephesians is instructing slaves of all people and calling them to this remarkable life. For the honor of their Lord Jesus the Christ. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly, you slaves, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because, and this is why he calls slaves to this remarkable ethic, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. So there is coming a day when every good, humble, submissive deed born out of faith will be rewarded. Every deed. So we've seen now in chapter 25 that God has readied David for chapter 26 for the camp where he's standing there with his warrior friend with spear in hand, Saul dead asleep, totally defenseless at his feet. And David says these amazing, amazing words. He says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. By the encounter with Nabal, by the wise words and actions of Abigail, David has been trained to trust God, especially his timing, and not take matters into his own hands, especially matters of vengeance. What do you have in your hands this morning? 
What has your anger incited you to grasp with your hands and take actions or speak words that God has not sanctioned? In fact, actions or words that are leading you into sin. Where have you run ahead of God and taken matters into your own hands? Perhaps by anger or perhaps by pride. Whose voice has your pride caused you to ignore? What has your spouse been saying gently and quietly and you refuse to listen? What have your children said to you? What have your employees said to you? Underclassmen, what have they said? And you've ignored it because of your pride. Perhaps the most pressing question this morning is, are you playing the fool like Nabal? by opposing and rejecting the call of the one who has come and invited you to a relationship of trust with his heavenly father, the anointed king of God's people, Jesus. Jesus, who said these words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, I want to lead us in a time of prayer and reflection and the worship team will come then for a time of response. What is God saying to you? Let's pray together.